agencies responsible for resettling refugees in the United States in partnership with the government, working alongside dioceses, faith communities, and volunteers. Episcopal Migration Ministries currently has 22 affiliate offices in 17 states. At a time when the world is facing a staggering refugee crisis, Canon Stevenson is leading Episcopal Migration Ministries with dedication and passion, bringing the church closer to its calling to serve all people with dignity. Episcopal Migration Ministries' vision honors both the Episcopal Church's baptismal covenant and the historical role of the United States as a safe haven for those seeking freedom from oppression. Episcopal Migration Ministries is committed to carrying these values and commitments forward into the future on behalf of the church. Before his current role with Episcopal Migration Ministries, Canon Stevenson served as the Episcopal Church Domestic Poverty Missioner responsible for encouraging poverty ministry no. efforts aimed oh, no, at no, no, systemic no. change oh, no, and no, overseeing no. jubilee ministries no, no, no. with nearly 700 ministries that focus on the economically oh. <laughs> impoverished. Prior to that, Canon Stevenson served as the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Louisiana. When Hurricane Katrina made landfall just days before Canon Stevenson took his post, the scope of his ministry expanded dramatically to include, include working with then Bishop Charles Jenkins, as well as local, regional, national, and international leaders and groups to put in place the processes for effective relief ministry. Before that, Canon Stevenson served as rector of the Church of the Annunciation in New Orleans, in the Diocese of Louisiana, and the Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida, in the Diocese of Central Florida. Additionally, Canon Stevenson serves on the board of the Living Church Foundation and has been a board member of the Episcopal Relief and Development since 2012. It has been my distinct pleasure to work with and learn from Canon Stevenson while serving on the staff of the presiding bishop since 2013. As St. John's explores how it can better serve and walk with refugees and immigrants, I am especially pleased that Canon Stevenson is able to be here today. I'm sure you will find his perspectives on how we can protect persecuted and oppressed persons around the world engaging and uplifting. Thank you, Canon Stevenson, for being here today and making the time to be here. And please join me in welcoming him. Thank you, Lacey. My thanks to all of those here at St. John's, uh, to your leadership team, both ordained and lay, for their wonderful hospitality and welcome. These are interesting times to be directing a national refugee resettlement agency. I've been uh, telling people that a quote from the great baseball manager, somewhat eccentric baseball manager, Casey Stingle from the last century. Some of you may remember or know of Casey Stingle. Uh, he was uh, fond of saying that the uh, art of successful managing is to keep the five people who hate you away from the four people who have not yet made up their minds. So, uh, <laughs> As I said, it's an interesting time to be directing a National Refugee Resettlement Agency. Uh, but over the next little bit of time, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the work of Episcopal Migration Ministries, and I'm going to try to keep the warring parties at bay. I suspect that there are various levels of understanding or even assumption in this room about refugees, about refugee resettlement, about refugee ministry 
more broadly. I apologize if some of what I may say is already second nature to any of you, but I want to make sure that we have, have a common baseline for our discussion, because after my formal presentation, we'll take some uh, questions and I'll try to make some answers to them, and I always find that Q&A session uh, to be informative and a lot of fun, at least for me. But first, to set the stage, I need to begin with just a little bit of history. If you have been following Episcopal Migration Ministries on social media as of late, you'll be familiar with the image that's on this banner right here. Now this is, of course, a reference, it's a visual depiction of Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, the story of the Holy Family fleeing King Herod after he ordered the slaughter of the infant children of Israel. This is the rather harrowing recollection of how Jesus, Mary, and Joseph became our most well-known refugees. Now, I really wish that I could say that I came up with this particular poster, but I, I cannot claim ownership or authorship. It's actually, this is a reprint of a poster that dates to 1938 that was uh, prepared in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. And I like to use it, I like to refer to it because it points to the very rich heritage that the Episcopal Church has in its ministry amongst refugees. As sort of an aside, I've been doing a little bit of research as of late into the Episcopal Church's overall history with immigration ministry. And it was really in the mid to late 19th century with a flurry of activity in the 1880s actually, that we as Episcopalians started to ramp up and enter the work of immigration ministry with intentionality. But it was in the 1930s, the 1930s that marked the beginning in many ways of the Episcopal Church's refugee ministry. As Episcopalians helped bring those who were fleeing the horrors of Nazi Europe to the safety of America. The Residing Bishops Fund for World Relief, which is now known as Episcopal Relief and Development, that organization, that ministry, grew out of that movement in the late 1930s. As Lacey mentioned earlier in, in the introduction, currently there are only nine agencies who resettle refugees in the United States of America through a public-private partnership with the federal government. Now, this is a very important point to remember. Even though our, there are many ministries across the country that work with refugees, thanks be to God, providing services and, and helping them settle into their new home. No refugee comes to this country. No refugee is resettled in the United States except through the United States Refugee Resettlement Program and the nine agencies that coordinate with the federal government. 85,000 refugees were resettled here in 2016. The number for 2017 is closer to 50,000, all through nine agencies. And six of those agencies, six of those agencies are faith-based agencies. The United States is not like Canada where private co-sponsors can foster refugees. If refugee resettlement happens in America, it happens through one of us, and again, six of us are faith-based. Being a resettlement agency, being a partner with the government, grants us, grants the Episcopal Church and others tremendous access to this work. This is particularly important in these times when I think that we need to be able to use our prophetic voice as a church to speak to the world when the world really needs to hear of this need. As director, I get to meet regularly with, uh, with folks in the Department of State, the Department of Health and Human Services. In fact, I had meetings just this past Friday 
with folks from both of those two agencies. Last April, I got to speak to 500 of my newest, closest friends at a symposium in the United Nations. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I've come a long way since pastoral ministry class in seminary. But the really cool thing about that United Nations event was not that, that I got invited to speak, but it was the letter that I received from the organizer afterwards. This is what he wrote to me. I cannot imagine the panel having as great of an impact as it did had you not been present. The doctrinal content, content that you brought is very unusual for a meeting in the United Nations, but it is also something that is needed more in these halls. It invited, I believe, the Spirit of God into the room in a way that touched all of those present. Wow. The United Nations wanting more religion. Who'd have thunk it? But let's shift a bit from who we are to who it is that we serve, refugees. First, I want to make sure that everyone here understands that when I speak of refugees, when I use that word refugees in the context of my presentation this morning, I'm talking about, about a very particular, specific classification of person. The term refugee is used, of course, in any number of different ways, sometimes more generally to describe a situation, sometimes more specifically. I was in Louisiana at the time of Katrina, as Lacey pointed out, and the news regularly reported those who fled out of Louisiana into other states, they called them refugees. And in many ways, that's an okay use of the term. But for purposes of this discussion, as I say, when I speak of refugees, what I mean is the, the term as defined under the, under the 1951 Geneva Convention to mean a person who has fled her or his home for fear of their life. They've crossed an international border to escape persecution, war, or violence. And having done that, they've been given the legal designation of refugee, most commonly by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. If someone were to enter into this country on his or her own, they might rightly refer, be referred to as an asylum seeker. And the bigger picture conversation of asylum seekers or even immigrants as a whole, that's an important conversation, one that perhaps needs to happen, probably should happen more and more within our churches. My colleague Lacey is an expert on all of those matters, and I, you might consider inviting her to speak to you more directly, more broadly later on. But again, I'm here to speak at this point, specifically about that legal definition, those legally defined refugees. There are 22.5 million persons in the world today who have been legally declared and documented as refugees. 22.5 million, over half of whom are children. When you count those who are forcibly displaced within their own country or who are still seeking refugee designation elsewhere, that 22.5 million number increases to 65.6 million people. One out of every 114 persons in the world today is a refugee, asylum seeker, or is otherwise displaced. Averages vary by group over time, but the United Nations reports that large numbers of refugees spend 17 or more years of their lives 
uprooted. Currently, all refugees have less than a 1% chance of ever being resettled beyond the country of first refuge. Every minute of every day, 20 more people are displaced forcibly from their homes. That's more than 28,000 people today, tomorrow, and every day for the foreseeable future. When a child, when a woman, when a man flees across an international border seeking safety, they are at the mercy of the country to which they flee for protection. Unfortunately, most refugees flee to host countries that are barely able to sustain to support their own populations. Ten countries, ten countries which account for just 2.5% of the global economy, ten countries which account for just 2.5% of the global economy host over half of the world's asylum seekers and refugees. 86% of the world's refugees are hosted by developing countries. The tenuous situations in which refugees find themselves in their host countries often drive many of them to make the desperate decision to attempt a dangerous cross-country trek through deserts or jungles or a sea crossing to Europe or Australia. I'm sure many of you have seen the devastating photo of the Syrian toddler whose body washed up on the beach in Turkey in the fall of 2015. As the British Somali poet Warson Shire writes in his poem, Home, you have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. I cannot stress this enough. This is moral, godly, gospel, Jesus movement work. We do it because refugees are among the most vulnerable people on the planet. When a person flees across an international border to escape life-threatening circumstances, there are really only three what the United Nations refers to as durable solutions. The first, of course, the preferred option is to let them go home, to send them home. That would be the best possible thing, voluntary repatriation. It's actually illegal under international law to forcibly send someone home who qualifies as a refugee to send them home to a place where it's not safe. We cannot forcibly, nor should we forcibly send them home. Voluntary repatriation into a safe home environment is the first option. The second option, of course, is local integration into the country of first asylum. But there are often all manner of obstacles to that issue. For example, how on earth is Bangladesh ever going to absorb the more than 600,000 Rohingya refugees that have been forced across its border just since August? Not to say anything about all of the other social and cultural issues that surround that. The final option, the third option, is resettlement into a third country. But there are only about 30 countries, give or take, that are open to that in a given year. 
Resettlement into a third country is the option of last resort for refugees. After it is clear that voluntary repatriation, local integration, after it's clear those two options are not available. And again, less than 1% of all refugees will ever be resettled into a third country. If a refugee wins that lottery and is referred to the United States for resettlement, Historically, they then have to undergo the most vigorous screening process known in America. Five federal agencies oversee data mining, interviews, medical screenings, and numerous cross-checks and references to make sure that the resettlement program is safe. I could talk a little bit later if you want to about recent developments in the screening process, but I really want to be clear about something. National security and helping those fleeing persecution are two values that we can and do hold in concert. Refugees are in dire need of the help that we can give them. And there is no more difficult way to enter this country than through the United States Refugee Program. There has been much written and said as of late about potential violence on the part of refugees coming to the United States. I will simply say this. Earlier this year, the Cato Institute released a study in which they showed that statistically, the chance of an American being murdered in a terrorist attack caused by a refugee is one in 3.64 billion. That's billion with a B. That's roughly the equivalent to winning the Powerball lottery 12 times. Refugees are not a threat. Refugees are people. People who want to live out peaceful lives, working and learning and laughing and fulfilling their dreams. A quick story about one of those people a young man named Maher. Maher is a former refugee from Iraq, and I had the uh, pleasure and the honor of meeting him not long ago. Maher came to his family, came to America with his family in 2014, and at the time he was the only one in his family who spoke English. Now, by his own admission, he barely spoke English. He was a professional photographer back home, and he wanted to be a photographer here in the United States, but he had no clue how to set up a business, how to operate a business, how to navigate much of America when he arrived in 2014. But he knew he wanted to support and needed to support his family, so he rolled up his sleeves, he took cultural orientation classes, and he took job training classes, and he set about, set about to find the first job, the best job he could get, and that first best job he could get was delivering pizza. Now, as he was telling me this story, at this point he got very quiet and sort of looked down, and I said, Mahar, what's going on? And he didn't really want to say anything, and the woman who was with him kind of elbowed him in the ribs and said, said uh, go ahead, tell him the story, tell him the story. Well, it seems as though Maher didn't keep that job delivering pizza very long because he got fired. And the reason he got fired was that his manager kept getting phone calls from people who were sitting at home watching sporting events, that when Maher would show up at their home to deliver their pizza, he would begin to lecture them on the unhealthy nature of pizza. And that if they really wanted to live long, productive lives, they should improve their diet. Maher, by the way, now has a thriving photography business 
specializing in wedding photography. In fiscal year 2016, Episcopal Migration Ministries resettled 5,762 persons just like Maher. In 2017, we resettled right at 4,090 persons. And it was only that high because for the first three and a half months of the fiscal year, we were on track on a target for 110,000 overall in the system. We did that work. We resettled those nearly 10,000 Mahers, like the 80-some thousand over the three decades prior. We resettled them, we brought them here, we welcomed them to America through a network of then 30 affiliate sites. In this coming year, because the ceiling for the U.S. resettlement program has been set by the President at only 45,000 refugees for the entire system, we've had to, as they say, right-size our network. We now have 22 sites operating in 17 states. Those affiliate agencies, those communities, in partnership with the community around them, provide safe and affordable housing, they teach English as necessary, they provide employment training, they educate communities about refugees. Quite simply, they help refugees understand and to become a part of their new home. My wife Joy and I just recently moved, we're from Louisiana, and we just recently moved to New Jersey, and the two of us had to go to the New Jersey DMV, and it was hard enough for a couple of Southerners to understand that. I can't imagine. <laughs> what it must be like for someone coming to this country barely speaking the language. When it comes to, to partners, to communities that, with whom we are partnering, I actually have some good news. In addition to our existing resettlement affiliates, Episcopal Migration Ministries is in the process of broadening our network to include partnership groups that do not resettle refugees. These partners in welcome, as we are calling them, these partners in welcome are communities, congregations, and faith groups of all manner and type that want to minister to the refugees and immigrants in their midst in a broad sense. Now, I don't know if you all know this or not, but the Episcopal Church is very well connected, and we have churches in virtually every community across this country. And by, that very, by the nature of that, by the nature of that, it's the perfect network from which to build a more broad network around the ideas of immigration and refugee ministry. Partners in Welcome, however, is not only specific to the Episcopal Church. Our pilot community is an interfaith group in Charleston, West Virginia. You'd think, Charleston, West Virginia, do they, you know, is that a hotbed of immigration and refugee work? It is. It's, it's an amazing group of people there. We have an interfaith group of a mix of Christians, Muslims, and Jews who are all in for this work, and we're in partnership with them. We're in early conversations with a large Presbyterian group in Texas, and we have a terrific ongoing partnership with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm actually going to Salt Lake City next week to spend some time with them. In all of this networking, we, the Episcopal Church, Episcopal Migration Ministries, are going to help each other. All of our community partners will help each other to discern exactly how it is that God is calling us to be a welcoming community. We will offer and share training, teach effective advocacy techniques, and quite simply, build community. Through it all, of course, how we do what we do is made important by why we do it.
And the why we do this is because it is a calling from God, because it is the moral, right, best thing to do. St. Matthew, who anchors the beginning of the story of the life of Jesus by proclaiming him as a refugee. St. Matthew also carefully anchors the final week of Jesus's life by recording his words about how God separates the righteous from the unrighteous. In Matthew 25, we read that this separation is not by what language one speaks, or by what clothes one wears, or by the part of the world in which, in which one lives. No, the separation of the righteous from the unrighteous is by whether one helps the vulnerable and welcomes the stranger or not. There are no fancy examinations, no paperwork, no politics. Simply, quote, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, and even as you did it to others, you did it also to me. Yes, nation states have the right and even the responsibility to set immigration policies. But as Christians, our calling is to be a prophetic voice for welcome. The path forward is not an easy one. We face pressure from those who would end the process of welcome. And since under our system in the United States, refugee resettlement is funded overwhelmingly by federal contracts, we face a collapsing programmatic infrastructure unless we can broaden our base of support. Another slight aside, one of the things that, that I often hear said and heard said recently by those who oppose refugee resettlement is that refugee resettlement agencies like Episcopal Migration Ministries are getting rich off of this program. This is simply not true. Every single dollar that is granted for this work is used as it is intended or as it is sent back. Better than 99% of EMM's total budget comes from federal contracts. 90% of those dollars are passed directly to the local communities doing their work, and they have to account for every single dollar as well, or we send it back. But that being said, all this talk about money and infrastructure, all the talk about people putting pressure on this way or that way, I cannot stress enough that for me, this ministry reaches to the core of my faith as a Christian. And if that is indeed the case, I have no doubt that we will find a way through this time. This is godly Jesus movement work. In January of this year, as national policy around refugee resettlement began to shift, as travel bans and program pauses were implemented, I wrote and published some thoughts on what all this means for us as a nation, for us as a community of faith, and for me. Before I get to your questions, I want to close my formal presentation by sharing with you just a portion of my January statement. This action, the 
refusal to welcome refugees. This action is taken, we are told, to make us safe. Yet isolating ourselves from the world does not make us safer. It only isolates us. Being afraid of those who differ from us does not make us wise or even prudent. It only traps us in an echo chamber of suspicion and anger and stops us cold from loving as Christ loved. Judging an entire culture or a religion or a nation by the actions of extremists within it does not make us a strong leader in the world. It destroys our ability to tap into the strength of the greater whole. It causes others to judge us. And like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not as others are, it stains our soul with the self-righteousness that grieves the heart of God. America cannot solve the violence in other lands on this particular day, nor even in the days that will follow immediately. But we can act morally and show leadership. We can save lives today, tomorrow, and the day after that. We can offer a place of safety and a second chance at life to those who so desperately need it. For me, as a Christian, I cannot conquer the evil in this world. But as a Christian, I know that I do not have to. Jesus has already won that battle for me. I am called simply to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I can see the image of God in the other and give thanks for it. My sisters and brothers, we are all, each and every one of us, aliens in the land. And yet, we are all, each and every one of us, we are all one in God. Thank you. While not your typical refugees, 10% of Puerto Rico's population will have moved to different states of the Union by December 31st. Okay, 10% of Puerto Rico's population, which are not your typical refugees, will have moved to the states uh, between September and December 31st. Uh, I know that our diocese down there is receiving you know, goods and all that, and we're helping out that way. Is there anything that is being done at the national level to help Puerto Rico? So that's a great question. Um, and I, so I work in the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, and we do advocacy on a federal level uh, with the federal government. And I would encourage you, I think you already mentioned that the diocese there are doing quite a lot, and parishes there are working with local communities. So our office will probably be working with those local communities to see what they need and what um, they're requesting in terms of assistance. And then once we hear from that, we would be able to speak with members of Congress, with the federal government in terms of response that is needed. Um, and I'd be happy to speak with you one-on-one -on -one if you have more particular examples of you know, um, certain needs or ways that we can assist right at this moment. I would add to that that America has a, 
more broadly speaking, America has a, a great, wonderful history of welcoming uh, wave after wave of, of various folks into our country in times of need. I mean, it, and this is a time where, because of natural disaster, because of other issues, that, that there are groups coming in. And we actually know how to do this. And Episcopal churches know how to do this. Uh, you know, I, I was can of the ordinary in Louisiana for a long time, and one of the things I did was work with congregations, and, and we'd uh, spend time trying to tease out what people's uh, abilities were and their needs, their gifts were. And uh, people always say about Episcopal churches is that we know how to show hospitality. We know how to welcome. And I think the Episcopal church can, in this time, be a, a partner with any number of groups who will do more specific work that we could then offer our ability to welcome. So I encourage you to get in touch with your diocese. And as Lacey said, we can take other more specific steps. Question, right, Jeff? Um, would you be able to provide us with uh, three or four w different paths that congregations or parishes have taken in response to the need? Right. So the, starting with the, say, say the most, most formal, as I said, there are uh, nine resettlement agencies, and we all have affiliates all across the country. Uh, the Episcopal Migration Ministries does not have an affiliate here in, in Washington, D.C., in the area, but uh, several do, and we can make those available. And so the, the, the most formal way would be for you to contact, I'm assuming IRC has an office here. Or, oh, Lutheran Social Services. Ah, oh, good. That's even better. Lutheran Social Services. Contact Lutheran Social Services and work with them in their very specific uh, program. And what often happens is that uh, a congregation will agree, as I heard earlier during the service that you're considering doing, will work in, in a co-sponsorship model with that formal affiliate, that formal agency, uh, to provide the basics when somebody arrives. Because when a family comes here, an individual or a family, there are, there's a whole bunch that has to happen right away. And it only happens because of the volunteers. There's not enough paid staff. And I wouldn't want to do it all by paid staff. So you can uh, work through those formal channels. And if you're already in conversation with Lutheran Social Services, fantastic. I'm, I have no pride of ownership in the thing. I, I, I'm, I'm happy that you're working with, with uh, the Lutherans. Another thing that, that often happens is uh, uh, be in contact around the diocese with other congregations that might have resettled refugees. Uh, the, where I thought I heard the question going earlier, uh, which wasn't, refugees move around from after they get here. They come in, the, the program, the initial program is 90 days. They may be in a 120, 180-day program, but then they're free, and secondary migration happens a lot. Uh, people move to other communities. So work with other congregations, uh, investigate through local community resources what communities may be here of people who have recently come to America who have settled in but who aren't settled in yet. They still need welcome and integration as well. And then I think I would say more generally, uh, when, when, they, when they come and they become part of your community, as you're integrating them in, as you're welcoming them into your community, celebrate who they are. Don't try to make them who we are. My very first parish in New Orleans, 60% uh, of the folks were from Belize, and it was a lot of fun for me. If I had gone in there and tried to make them all look like a six foot three white guy, it uh, would not have worked well. Uh, the, Belizeans taught me a lot about a lot of things, so I would encourage you, in whatever way you get involved in this ministry, learn from those new Americans who have come here. What's the time frame from once they say, I'm willing to settle to a third party? You mentioned 90, 120 days, and then is there a follow-up along those lines? So what kind of commitment are volunteers looking for, whether it's a church or an individual, to help these folks? Right. 
So backing up a bit in the timeline, uh, a, a family goes across an international border into another country. Uh, sometimes we'll end up in an urban area, oftentimes we'll end up in a camp. I mean, you can go online and see the, some of the horror stories that we see in refugee camps throughout the world. Uh, sometimes they're there, as I said, upwards of 17 or more years. Once they get uh, into the process, if, if they, they, have, they have their designation to the United Nations as a refugee, and once they're referred to the United States, it then takes 18 to 24 months, typically, before they would get travel papers. Uh, you know, this last year has been sort of an anomaly for any number of reasons, but just discount that. <laughs> Normally, 18 to 24 months, they have all these screenings to go through, and they all have to line up just the right way. And if uh, they wait too long on one thing, and then that may time out, whatever. So 18 to 24 months, they are then assigned to one of the nine resettlement agencies. Every Wednesday of every year, the nine resettlement agencies get together with a representative from the Department of, from the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration at State, and uh, they do an allocations meeting. And it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, I, I refer to it as our version of the NFL draft. And we go through the list of refugees who are coming, and it's, it's a group of people who study these lists, and they're not just numbers on a page. They're not just names on a page. They really spend a lot of time learning who these folks are, what special needs they may have, uh, you know, if somebody has a special medical issue, there's only some communities they can go to. You don't want to spend, you don't want to send a Somali to a community where there are no other Somalis. All these things that come into, the, into play. So on Wednesdays, every Wednesday of every year, uh, we decide when we get the list from the Department of State who's coming in the future, they, we divide those up in uh, a, a fair and equitable and hopefully um, prayerful way. And then we send them, to, we give them that list to one of our affiliate sites. If a, if a family's been assigned to us and we're going to send them to our affiliate, say, in Denver, we, we work with them. So then it's a matter of a few weeks, uh, give or take, depending on the situation before that person comes. The folks in Denver, the, 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 uh, the family will, will fly into the United States, into some, some gateway city, probably have to change airplanes, and, and there are representatives there to help them do that. They get to Denver, and someone there will welcome them. Probably a volunteer family will welcome them, take them to uh, an apartment that has been acquired for them that they will have to sign a lease for. Uh, and they have 90 days worth of uh, uh, services that we provide through our contracts. Uh, then those are supplemented by services that the local affiliates provide. They may well be uh, put into what's called the matching grant program that, that lasts for 120 days. It's an intensive. Uh, program of job training and other skills. We know that uh, roughly over the last couple of years between 84 and 86 percent of all those who are enrolled in that 120-day matching grant program are self-sufficient at the end of the 120 days. So imagine going to another country, not speaking the language, and in 120 days having a job, paying your rent, paying your groceries, understanding the transportation. So all that really is done, uh, it can only be done, because of the intense, passionate work by the professionals and the volunteers in those local communities. So if you're getting ready to sign up for this, I see some heads over here nodding. I'm not sure who's in charge of this, but I saw a group over here nodding their heads. Uh, it's wonderful work, but it's, it, it, will be, it will be some work to help them because the government funding is not sufficient, nor is the time sufficient. Now, at the end of that 90-day period, which is the initial uh, resettlement and placement period funded by state, and perhaps at the end of the 120 days if they got into the matching grant program, they really are on their own. And so then it really falls completely on the faith community to help support them. There's a great book that just was published, and I commend it to you, uh, 
called The Newcomers. And it's written by the former First Lady of the Diocese of Colorado. Uh, her name is Helen uh, Thorpe. She was married to Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, the refugees, you should, I mean, pardon me, the, the newcomers. If you want to see and follow through uh, how the, this program develops and how people uh, work with refugees, I highly commend this book, The Newcomers by Helen Thorpe, just published earlier this month. A dear friend told me a harrowing tale, how, a story of how, as a 12-year-old, he escaped on a military helicopter under a hail of bullets from Vietnam. There was a national emergency. How does the scale of resettlement program from then compare with what's going on now? The program, of course, has ebbed and flowed over the years. It has been, we currently operate under a law enacted in, in 1980. The United States Refugee Act in 1980 is what guides, we were doing refugee resettlement before then, but the program now, 1980. It's historically been a bipartisan uh, effort. You know, if you look at the year that the most refugees were resettled, it was when Ronald Reagan was president and 207,000 refugees were resettled in a year. Almost as many re refugees were resettled in four years under George Bush the first as they were under eight years of Barack Obama. So it's been a bipartisan issue. And it's ebbed and flowed in large part by the crises in the world at the time and our response to them. Now, of course, you know, we, when 9-11, happened, I mean, we as a country, I think rightfully so, had to stop, step back and say, hey, we need to look at everything because we just got hit by something we never got hit by before. Um, but with, with the exception of that kind of anomaly, it really often ebbs and flows by the crises. And so that if you look in the 70s and 80s, you had a lot of folks coming from Southeast Asia because that's where the refugee crises were. If you go back before that, post-World War II, you had a lot of uh, Eastern Europeans that were coming uh, to America. Uh, it, recently, it's been people from the Middle East uh, because that's where the crises are. Right, and, they, and, and every year, the, um, you want to speak to that real quick? The, 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 or the, uh, the, every year, the, the Department of State and others work on that, and that's above my pay grade. But yes, they, uh, you know, I would, I would encourage you to do some research on that, and if that's, a, if that's an issue that's near and dear to your heart, have conversation with your members of Congress, uh, with people in government, because they're the ones that set all those quotas. And, and in, a, in a best case scenario, those quotas would, would shift, and I think probably historically they have, uh, in response to the crises that we face in the world at a particular time.